Welcome to Briefly Legal, your podcast briefing on legal news, developments, and legislation on the go. Brought to you by the attorneys of Crow and Dunleavy. The following should not be considered as a substitute for legal advice. Visit CrowDunleavy.com for more information. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Adam Childers, here in the Crow's Nest and back to you once again with that podcast known as Briefly Legal, brought to you by the law firm of Crow and Dunleavy. Well, I've started out the year uh, 2022. It's still hard for me to actually wrap my mind around that. But we started out with a couple of shows about all things COVID, and and uh, that was a lot of fun. But it's time to turn our attention to a, a topic that is also very timely uh, and of great interest. And today, what we're going to be talking about is federal environmental law in Oklahoma, and particularly the nexus that it is reaching at this point with the McGirt decision, uh, that Supreme Court decision in 2020 that we've heard about uh, previously, uh, episodes 15 and 19 from season one of Briefly Legal. If you're interested, you'll get a great predicate to the McGirt decision from uh, Greg Buzzard and Jennifer Lamoran, but the tentacles of McGirt continue to to reach out and now are impacting directly on environmental law. So I knew who to call to get some good information about that, and that's none other than our good friend and Tim Sawacki. Tim, say hello to everybody. Good afternoon, podcast world. It's great to be here again. It is great to have you here again because you have been a wonderful guest in the past. The first time uh, was when uh, you and uh, Don Shandy regaled me with information about PFOAs, uh, the, the forever chemicals, which was uh, a fan favorite from season one. And then uh, you also came and talked to us about eminent domain last year, sort of showcasing the uh, breadth and width of your practice. And so environmental law uh, is obviously a key part of what you do. Tim's a senior associate here at the firm in our energy, environment, and uh, natural resources practice group. And so, of course, uh, when looking at this topic, he was the, uh, you know, the perfect candidate to kind of help us navigate these uh, murky waters that we find ourselves in. So let's dive into it, Tim. It's, um, it's a subject that I think is just fascinating, you know, to read about and learn more about. And it's pretty timely, I would uh, guess, since just last uh, Friday, I, th- I believe the United States Supreme Court shot down a whole bunch of uh, just a raft of attempts at getting uh, certiorari on trying to undo McGirt, although one was taken up. It looked like to me, and tell me if I'm, I'm wrong on this, that the core of McGirt that we're going to be talking about today uh, remains undisturbed. That is correct. The, the court on Friday um, clearly stated that it it wasn't going to revisit the issue of whether or not the Muscogee Creek had been the reservation disestablished. It was more going to um, look into the issue of whether Indian um, offenses against non-Indians within Indian country should be subject to state jurisdiction. But for our purposes here today, environmental law, um, that has no bearing. Absolutely, which means that it is just one of many areas uh, 
you know, taxes being another one that has been looked at closely uh, in post-McGirt, but one where there's, you know, a significant tension now between uh, the state and uh, the, the five tribes, uh, you know, as they, uh, everybody tries to figure out, um, you know, whose responsibility it is. And obviously when it comes to environmental law, that there's a, there's a lot of things that can fall underneath that umbrella, but let's, let's back up for a minute first. And although we've talked a little bit about this in the past, it's important to our discussion today. Give us a little bit of an overview, if you would, of the, you know, how we got here with the five tribes in Oklahoma, get us a, a setup on how we wound up here, you know, pre-McGirt. Thanks, Adam. And we're talking McGirt today. We're talking about more of the uncertainty created by McGirt in Oklahoma's um, administration of federal environmental laws. And to do that, um, we kind of need to lay some foundation. And I know um, there's been many authors that have written excellent treatises and histories on the history of Native Americans in Oklahoma. Um, But we need to kind of cover that fairly quickly here. So let's start with post-revolutionary war. There's spirit of a new nation in the air. The eastern seaboard is becoming more and more populated. Commerce is is emerging throughout the former colonies, now states. Um, But this led to a dilemma um, in the Andrew Jackson administration, whereby we had a little bit of a problem, at least a problem in the eyes of of folks wanting to settle the former colonies. And that is um, the occurrence of tribes in some of these southern states, Georgia and Florida. So in 1830, there was an act passed by the Jackson administration called the Indian Removal Act, which essentially we know it um, as the Trail of Tears um, led to the tribes occupying lands in what is presently eastern Oklahoma um, until uh, there was a policy change in the late 19th century. What had previously been thought of as a good idea, we'll consolidate all the tribes into these reservation lands, um, now was being called into question because, again, commerce and the sale of things and the alienability, the selling of lands had um, hit Oklahoma and, and the western frontier. And so the allotment era began in the late 19th century, whereby previously parcels of reservation land were alienated from the tribes, given to tribal members, and turned essentially into property. The end result of all of this, the allotment era created a lot of different ownership characteristics within what today is is still, and, and per the McGirt decision, the exterior boundaries of the Muscogee Creek Indian Reservation. But those underlying Indian policies had really created, again, this patchwork of private lands, Indian lands held in trust, even state lands within these exterior boundaries. Now, in 1934, the Indian Reorganization Act put an end to the allotment era. But the product, the result of the allotment era, the breaking up of pieces of property within what was formerly or what was understood to be the reservations resulted in a patchwork of private lands, lands held in trust by the tribes, allotted lands. Um, so this idea of a, of a discrete uh, unified reservation by the process of allotment was no longer a reality. Listening to that, I'm thinking to myself, okay, you've covered a wide swath of American history to even get to that point. And just that 
created all kinds of complications in terms of the kinds of lands, ownership. And that's even before we start talking about kind of overlaying this with environmental administration, right? So I guess maybe this then kind of transitions us into, you know, kind of talk us through the history of how we uh, saw development and administration of, of federal environmental regulations for a state that was at this point comprised of a large number of parcels of land over which you had folks that weren't entirely clear who owned what and and and, and what rights went with it. Yeah, so following, you know, the the 1934 Indian Reorganization Act which again ended the allotment area, we moved into more of an era of of recognizing that the tribes um, were a sovereign, albeit a, a dependent domestic, but a, but a sovereign um, and this concept of of not quite a state but almost another nation um, that we're dealing with. And this policy of tribal self-determination became a guiding force through the years. Fast forward to the advent of modern environmental law in the 70s, and we entered this era where um, we had the, the, the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, these alphabet soups of federal environmental regulations. These regulations, in the spirit of what we would call a cooperative federalism, allowed the states to administer certain components of these federal environmental programs. For instance, um, the state of Oklahoma can work up its own state implementation plan under the Clean Air Act, and then the Department of Environmental Quality implements that program. And in this vein of tribal self-determination, the EPA in 1984 put forth its own Native American policy, again saying that we would like to see the tribes um, determine more of their role and their interests in the regulation of the environment. So we've got 1984, and through the 80s, the late 80s and into the 90s, EPA then created these programs where similar to the state being able to administer certain regulations under, for instance, the the Clean Air Act, the tribes would be able to do that for Indian country. And so we're back to this idea of the tribes can administer environmental regulations subject to the approval of the EPA within the exterior bounds of their reservation, which is defined per statute as Indian country. And that's where the McGirt decision becomes super important because it it revisits that issue of were they disestablished and are they intact? So tell us how that plays out. Exactly. So McGirt happens July 2020. We've all heard about it. The critical holding of the court was that the Muscogee Creek um, Reservation had not been disestablished. So several weeks after the McGirt opinion, Governor Stitt at the time availed himself of a very obscure provision that can be found within a 2005 transportation bill. And it is known as the Oklahoma Midnight Rider. Oh wow! I, I love the I love the name of it at least. Yeah. <laughs> so so yeah, yeah. You, when you hear Midnight Rider, a lot of a lot of us will will think of this Allman Brothers song that that sure. talks of kind of an outlaw um, that is bound to keep on riding, and he's and he's got one more silver dollar, but he's not going to let him catch him. <laughs> no, you're not going to let him catch the Midnight Rider. So. 
those words are apt here. In 2005- I thought for a minute you were going to sing those to me. I was getting pretty excited. In which case, I was ready to lay down the, the, the lick that goes with it. But it's okay. It's all right. We'll make you sing next time. So we're revisiting this idea where the states can be treated in a way similar as the states in the administration of federal environmental regulations. Oklahoma tribes throughout the early 90s did not really seek to um, avail themselves as to administer these types of programs. But in 2004, the Pawnee Nation attempted to administer a program under these treatment as a state provisions within federal environmental regulatory regime. The state in 2004 was not pleased with this, and when they sought this designation from the EPA, actually brought litigation um, against the EPA. Senator Inhofe investigated the EPA. It wanted to he wanted to see how um, EPA was making these decisions to allow the tribes to regulate um, within Indian country, and. Not, you know, satisfied with that investigation, Senator Inhofe in 2005, in this transportation bill, after it had been reviewed by the Senate, after it had been reviewed by the House, so the two chambers inserted a, what again, what is called now this midnight rider, which essentially allows the state to request from the EPA that they administer all federal environmental programs that have been previously approved by the EPA in Indian country. And at the time that that rider was inserted, a lawyer for the Pawnee Nation described that rider as, quote, the most scary, direct, take the gloves off and go for the jugular attack on tribal sovereignty I have ever seen. Mm, Strong words. Another component of the Midnight Rider also required that for any of the tribes to avail themselves of this treatment as a state for purposes of of federal environmental regulations, it would need the state to sign on and approve of that. So, again, this rider presents, you know, this may be an issue where, oh, are we preemptively depriving the tribes of their ability or opportunity to exercise their sovereignty as expressed in some of these uh, federal environmental programs? So Stitt writes a letter to the EPA about several weeks after the McGirt decision and just and makes a request under this Midnight Rider provision. And the EPA, about two months later, approves it. Uh, the way the, the statute is written, there's little discretion in the EPA to basically deny it. So right. it's ask and you get. And that's essentially what Governor Stitt did. He wrote a letter to Administrator Wheeler with the EPA saying, we would like to, in the wake of McGirt, in the wake of such uncertainty, we want to assure ourselves that all the programs that you previously approved um, within the exterior boundaries of the Muscogee Creek Reservation that we have already been administering, we want to just be sure that we continue to administer them, and that is the law of the land. And EPA administrator responded. Now, the latest scuttlebutt. EPA last month basically made an announcement. They made a notice and a request for comment saying that we're going to revisit that decision that we made. Okay. We may not be so clear cut on acknowledging that the state has jurisdiction to regulate these federal environmental programs within the exterior boundaries of the Muscogee Creek Nation. What would the argument be? You said that the way it was written, the Midnight Rider didn't leave much 
discretion? Is it because of the way it was inserted kind of after the, the you know, debate had happened or, or what would be the grounds? Well, the grounds that the, the EPA stated in its notice is one that the consultation process with the tribes when Governor Stitt made his request was highly abbreviated. And there are some executive orders and, and there's strong policies within Indian law in the United States that you're supposed to consult with the tribes um, in order to make certain decisions, especially in administrative law like, like the EPA. Um, so that's one argument. There's this other argument that um, the procedural argument, um, you know, we typically understand that laws are made by our legislators um, reviewing the laws and then signing off on them. And then the finalized bill is, is reviewed and signed off on and agreed to. And so this idea of inserting a rider um, in this kind of legislative arrangement is is questionable. But I don't know enough about kind of the rules of, of the legislature to, to say that, you know, that was wrong per mm-hmm. se. Um, but the last thing is there's this big, big overwhelming question of the tribes, you know, they're, they're sovereigns. They are like nations um, in some regards. And historically, through statute, EPA has allowed them to exercise and, and administer um, certain environmental laws, again, recognizing that they're um, a sovereign in, in that regard and can can regulate um, their own lands. And that's where McGirt makes a big difference. I mean, when you've got that on your side. And so practically speaking, what does what, what do you think the future holds then? Do, do they become, does the state and the tribes, they become bedfellows in this somehow? Or is it going to be uh, antagonistic, you know, for, for years to come? You know, I, I'd like to be hopeful about the, the present situation, but it's clear that, you know, Governor Stitt and his administration are, are very um, much wanting to to protect the state's rights, and there's no harm in that. That's what you know our our executive of the state is is hired to, to do. do. Yeah. But on the other hand, the tribes uh, lay some claim here and and have you know have a statutory background to administer some of these environmental programs. The other thing I would say is that you know stakeholders here, uh, the business community, exactly. Who, who, you know, what should I be doing um, as, as someone who maybe has a business that occupies the, the eastern part of Oklahoma that now is kind of implicated through McGirt? To the extent you've been compliant and have a great uh, regulatory compliance program, whether they're environmental regulations or not, I would say continue to do what you're doing. You know, the status quo is good here. But at the same time, I would, depending on the size and you know the scale of your operations, you may or may not have some risk exposure here. And considering your activities, I would urge our listeners to evaluate whether these federal environmental regulations will impact materially, you know, their operations. Oh yeah. To that end, EPA has requested comment on its approval of the state's request under this midnight rider we've discussed. Last I checked this morning, only one comment has been submitted related to the issue of EPA approving that request. And you can bet that EPA is consulting the tribes through this. So I would also encourage any stakeholders that think they have interests here um, should submit comments and avail themselves of, of building an administrative record to protect their interests as EPA um, reconsiders its approval. And then, you know, the last comment here, the Midnight Rider reprisal. Um, Congress 
can speak here. And they, you know, that's what we've relied on in Indian law here in the United States is that Congress can speak to um, these issues related to the tribe and clarify the jurisdiction between the tribes and the states here. And Congress may not have that as a high priority right now. I know it is the state's and the tribe's high priority, so we might not see much action from Congress. So Justice Roberts, he he wrote in his opinion in McGirt that, that this could cause significant um, uncertainty with respect to environmental laws. And his premonition there seems to be coming true because um, in the wake of McGirt, in the wake of the EPA now entering the, the fracas here between the state and the tribes, um, we do have some uncertainty with um, regards to who administers federal environmental laws in Indian country in Oklahoma. Uh, always interesting topics, sovereign um, status of the tribes in Oklahoma, incredibly fascinating, incredibly complicated. Thanks to our listeners for putting up with us um, in the course of this discussion. Thanks. Well, Tim, it's been a, a fascinating ride. And certainly in terms of keeping track of these things, I know you and others within the practice group are doing this uh, on a constant basis. You know, even before taping this podcast, I was, you know, drowning in advisories and other resources that, sh- that your groups put out, uh, you know, just to get my arms around the the topic. But needless to say, you and your colleagues, you know, have it under control. And, and that's a great thing for our clients that have businesses uh, in Indian country and, and really just uh, for the, the business community as a whole, as we all kind of watch with bated breath to see if the state and the tribes can find some common ground and, and maybe some peace between them that's good for all. But we'll see. But thank you for that insight and that, well, really taking us from, you know, <laughs> American Revolutionary Times to present, which is uh, in a podcast, something to, to behold. So thank you. Appreciate the, the the knowledge you've imparted. So, loyal listeners, that's a wrap for this week. We have gotten off to a fantastic start here in January in season two of Briefly Legal. February will be bringing us even more opportunities to bring great speakers, great topics, uh, and interesting legal issues for your digestion. So looking forward to that. And uh, in the meantime, I just hope uh, that all of you out there are staying safe, you're staying warm, and enjoying yourselves. And be sure to tune in again next time as we all gather together for another episode of Briefly Legal.